You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Every year, 1.3 million women suffer from fractures as a result of osteoporosis. 30% of women hospitalized for treatment of a hip fracture die. While most physicians are comfortable with current screening recommendations and initiating treatment, there is a lack of consensus regarding how to monitor a patient in treatment and how to manage treatment failures. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Joining me to discuss monitoring and treatment of our patients is internationally recognized osteoporosis expert, Dr. Murray Favis, a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine, author of over 100 scientific articles, 65 book chapters, and director of the University of Chicago Bone Program. Welcome, Dr. Favis. Thank you. Every osteoporosis society seems to have slightly different recommendations as to how and when to monitor treatment response. Once a patient has been identified as having osteoporosis and bisphosphonate therapy is initiated, how do you follow that patient? Well, uh, of course, the endpoint of therapy is fracture. So the absence of a fracture, I guess we can take as successful therapy. Of course, uh, I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek because we're at that easy. Uh, then You would push them on, then have them fall down and see if they fractured, right? Well, uh, that's right. The absence of something isn't enough for us, and we have to have objective evidence that the person is responding to the uh, treatment. For the most part, bone densitometry has been used as a measure of bone strength, and that has been translated into fracture risk reduction. So improvement in bone mass measured by uh, densitometry is usually taken as a sign that the person is responding to the medication and therefore the fracture risk has been reduced. So when do you do that next DEXA scan? You know, once the treatment is initiated, we like, to, of course, we like to have a baseline or pre-treatment scan. We prefer to then rescan the patient in about 12 months. It takes some time for the, the medication to begin its effects on bone, and one needs a certain level of change in the bone mass before we can be certain that it's a significant change. So about 12 months seems convenient. And what sort of improvement is significant to assure that there has been some treatment response? The challenge is to look at the pretreatment scan and the 12-month scan and decide whether there has been a significant increase or decrease in the bone density during that interval. And one has to know how efficient or how reproducible, rather, the scanner is that's being used. Uh, generally, if you want to say that the change is significant uh, within the 95% confidence limits, you would take a change of 3%, either greater or 3% less, as being significant. So anything less than 3% change is assumed to be uh, machine noise or just natural variability. And how confident can you be that the change in bone mineral density translates to a change in fracture risk? That information or that leap of faith from the change in bone density to the change in fracture risk is based on the uh, clinical trials in which the uh, fracture rates are calculated for the uh, placebo and the active drug uh, treatment groups and the relative risk reduction, usually expressed as percent 
reduction in fracture rates over some period of time is derived from those studies, and uh, we make the assumption that they can be applied to our individual patient. So there is somewhat of a leap of faith, but it seems to be a valid leap of faith, if you will. So what do you recommend if you do that DEXA 12 months out and you don't see that minimum of a 3% increase? Do you do additional studies at that point? Well, of course, not every patient is going to respond within 12 months. If you look at the many clinical trials with the various medications, you'll see that there are some non-responders and a small number of people who actually experience a decrease in bone density. I think everybody would agree that a significant decline in bone mass during the course of therapy represents a failure of therapy. Likewise, an increase in bone mass is generally taken as a sign of successful response. The patient who doesn't respond one way or the other doesn't have a significant increase or decrease in bone mass. You know, what do we do about them? And often we'll give them another 12 months of therapy to see whether they respond to treatment or not. Some people have argued that stable bone mass represents an effect of the drug and therefore that person with a stable bone mass should be considered to have responded to the medication. Well, in that sort of a situation, would a marker of bone turnover be useful in monitoring what's going on as far as treatment and more important in predicting rates of future bone loss? Well, bone turnover markers have been used in clinical management. They seem to be most effective to assess changes in bone turnover in the large clinical studies, but nevertheless, one can use them in individual patients, particularly if you're comparing a pretreatment level with a sample that's obtained during treatment, perhaps four to six months into therapy. So which markers do you measure, and specifically what circumstances would you obtain a measurement? I mean, obviously, you're a referral center, so you very often are seeing patients who've already failed treatment. But for the general clinician who has diagnosed osteoporosis and is starting bisphosphonate treatment, is there any situation in which you recommend getting baseline markers of bone turnover? You're right. We do see patients who generally are already on treatment, and there's some question about whether they're responding or not. And so as part of our almost routine approach to those uh, patients, before we do anything, we like to know what their turnover rates are. And we'll use measurements such as urine NTX, serum osteocalcin, and serum bone-specific alkaline phosphatase. Those seem to be, at least in our hands, uh, quite reliable and useful if one doesn't overinterpret or try to overread the results. When there are very substantial changes from baseline, then one can feel comfortable that there's been a, a drug effect there. It certainly helps to have high levels of bone turnover when you're starting. The bone turnover levels are pretty much within the stated normal range. It's not going to help much. Then it may not be quite so helpful. Right. Aside from adequate calcium intake, what other dietary recommendations do you suggest? And specifically, my understanding is that the data on the impact of protein intake on bone density is somewhat conflicting. So what are your thoughts? Well, you mentioned protein intake, and this has been a topic that needs uh, some clarity. You're right that it's been controversial, but the nutrition studies to date really support the use of an adequate protein intake, whether it's vegetable protein or 
other sources of uh, protein and not to protein-restrict patients because anything that will interfere with bone growth or the anabolic uh, state will uh, certainly prevent response to therapy. The concern about protein is the sulfate that comes with uh, methionine ingestion. So it's a required amino acid. Sulfate is a component of the amino acid, uh, methionine, and one then has to excrete the sulfate, and in doing so, it creates uh, an acid load. Uh, That acid has to be buffered, and the major buffer in the body is the bone. So from that, people have extrapolated that eating protein and increasing your sulfate load is not a good thing. But on the other hand, restricting protein and restricting an important nutrient uh, doesn't seem to make sense either. Before we abandon using a bisphosphonate completely in the patient who's not tolerating a bisphosphonate, can you suggest ways to improve tolerability? Most of the intolerances, as you know, due to upper GI symptoms, which are very common in the general population who have never taken bisphosphonate. So that's the first thing we address is, did they have reflux or heartburn before they ever started an oral bisphosphonate? And if they're on therapy for that, then we would continue therapy. If they are using, if they're components of their diet or there's alcohol intake or coffee or other components that may stimulate their symptoms, then we ask them to eliminate or reduce their use. How about adding an antacid? Does anyone do that? One can't take antacids such as calcium carbonate and acids close to the time that you take the oral bisphosphonate because calcium will bind them up. But what we have done for many people is to ask them to take an H2 blocker the night before they're due to take their oral bisphosphonate. So they can, with just one of the H2 blockers a week, for many people that's sufficient to allow them to tolerate the oral bisphosphonate. Now, of course, because of direct-to-consumer marketing, patients all come in and want to take a monthly bisphosphonate rather than a weekly bisphosphonate. But my understanding is that reduction in hip fracture risk has not been established in randomized trials with the bandronate. So do you ever initiate treatment with a monthly bisphosphonate, or do you always start with weekly dosing and see how the patient tolerates it? Well, I think in terms of efficacy, if the person has a low bone mass at the hip, and you're concerned about the risk of hip fracture, then the first goal here is to select an oral bisphosphonate that has efficacy in reducing hip fractures and then see whether or not they uh, tolerate the medication. But what about if on their initial bone density their significant bone loss is limited to the spine? Is that someone who you might say it's reasonable to start with a monthly bisphosphonate? Well, then, because all of the FDA-approved oral bisphosphonates will reduce uh, vertebral fractures, uh, then under those circumstances that you describe, one could use any of them. An oral monthly bisphosphonate would be one of the choices. One last question. If all is well and there's been a good response to the bisphosphonate, do you stop therapy at some point? Even with long-term therapy, once you stop the medication, there will be a time where the medication's effects will wear off. And from the published studies, we know, for instance, that alendronate at the spine, the effects of long-term alendronate therapy may last as long as five years before a decrease in bone density is seen. On the other hand, at the hip, the alendronate may wear off within two years. But there's lots of variability at each of those sites, and some people may have 
the effects wear off in a year's time with stopping alendronate. So I think we have to be careful about that. I've not been terribly enthusiastic about uh, stopping the medication because it takes a fair amount of monitoring to be certain that they're not losing bone after uh, having been presumably successful on a course of therapy for a while. So if a patient is doing well, they're tolerating the bisphosphonate and they're getting a good response, right now, keep it going, unless you have a reason to stop it. That's right. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Murray Favis, for helping us better understand how to guide our patients through the treatment and prevention of osteoporosis. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com or to listen to this interview again, find us at www.reachmd.com. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.